Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I'm here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. And today we are taking a different approach. We're not going to be doing a video response today or anything like that. We're going to be diving into church history. Before we get into that, just want to remind everyone that we are on YouTube for video um, and for audio. We're on multiple platforms, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, um, Google Podcasts. So you can find us on places like that. Um, we also have a blog. I don't know if anyone has who's listening has actually read our blog, but it's at the URL is theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, we uh, haven't been posting as much lately, but uh, there's plenty of material there. So check that out. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to Sean to introduce our topic. Yeah, so today we're actually going to talk about the Reformation. Um, and we're going to go into the background of what sparked the Reformation. But then we're actually going to talk about Rome's response. And is that response the same? Like, do Roman Catholic, or I should say, does Roman Catholicism uh, hold those same views as they did in the uh, Counter-Reformation today? And uh, this, this is, uh, we think, an important subject to talk about because obviously people have Roman Catholic friends. You run into Roman Catholics all the time, and, you, and sometimes it's confusing how to treat them. Uh, I know from personal experience, uh, we used to go out to an abortion clinic, and we were constantly running into um, oh, yes. uh, Roman Catholics there. Um, and I heard many different answers about the atonement. I heard someone one time say something that sounded like Calvinism in their view of the atonement. And I heard someone say, uh, completely heretical, even from a Roman Catholic perspective, that Jesus just died as an example. Um, so there's, <laughs> there's a wide, uh, there's a wide, a wide view or wide, um, amount of, um, views within or within Roman Catholicism in the sense of their Roman Catholics that hold a number of different views, but we really want to get into what is officially the church teach, what's in the Roman Catholic Catechism, what does the Council of Trent actually say, and uh, we think that'll be helpful going forward. Yeah, and we want to just dive into not only the Doctrine of Justification by Faith, we'll definitely talk about a little bit how that came about, but what was some of the mindset that was going on at the time? Um, with regards to the Reformation, the church, and even academia, because academia played a huge role in influencing what became to be known as the doctrine of justification by faith, even though it was in the scriptures in terms of, I guess you could say, rediscovering. I don't know if that's a really good word for that, Sean, but um, I guess bring it to the forefront by Martin Luther and uh, Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon. But we see, um, it, you know, you have these central tenets of the Reformation. You have sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola de gloria. I think I got them all. Those are, I guess you could say, some of the main tenets or the main core tenets of the Reformation. But we really don't see that being pushed by the Reformers or even Luther at first. Um, this wasn't necessarily the case. Um, Needham talks about this in his volume four of his series, 2000 years of Christ power. If you haven't read that or used it, excellent resource. It's a four volume or four or five volume. Let me see what I got on my shelf. Four. I think it's four, four volume series of church history. Excellent, excellent um, resource to use. But he talks about some of what the core tenets of the reformation were. And he says, quote, Rowan, it took quite some time 
for the centrality of justification to become clear in the storms of Reformation controversy. It was certainly not the issue for which Luther was excommunicated by the papacy, see section five. Number two, the reformers were not only reformers of doctrinal theology as it related to the individual salvation, equally important was the reformation of worship and of church government. Those who concentrate their attention too narrowly on the doctrine of justification often neglect these crucial dimensions of the Reformation, end quote. So I think there can be a tendency, and uh, growing up, this is what I heard uh, when we were talking about you know, Luther's Reformation. The emphasis was always on his, almost always, I guess, on his doctrine of justification by faith. But there really wasn't a lot of discussion about other things that were going on. Luther's move towards justification by faith was not uh, in his 95 thesis. We do not find that at all. The 95 thesis that he nailed to the door of Wittenberg church was primarily about indulgences. At least that was a good section of his 95 thesis, criticizing the practice, although not completely criticizing it. He still did believe it had some merit, but just the way it was being presented was not done, he thought, in a biblical way. Um, and, and we see him going after the church in these practices because he remember Pope Leo X had authorized the sale of indulgences in 1515. John Tetzel, who was a Dominican friar, was the salesman for the Pope to get these indulgences out because they wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica and, and fund that, that project. Um, it, but the way that Tessel went about selling these indulgences uh, really made a stink in the church. Even uh, you see Desiderius Erasmus even had problems with it. He didn't condemn the practice completely, but he did not like the way it was being presented. Um, so this, this raised controversy even amongst the Catholic church. Remember, um, Erasmus was a Catholic priest. He was not a reformer. Um, and Luther obviously remained Catholic for a time before he left um, to be uh, more emphasizing his separation from the church in certain areas. Um, but be that as it may, there was this push away from uh, these practices that had come out from the Catholic church. Um, now, as it relates to solo fide, this, did co this certainly was a central tenet of the Reformation, and it developed really over time as it um, relates to humanism and the Renaissance. This mindset led these men, particularly Philip Melanchthon, who was a friend of Luther um, and, a, and a close scholar with him. Melanchthon was an expert in the Greek language. He was uh, influential in Greek studies in academia at the time. Um, and he taught, he was the first Greek uh, professor at University of Wittenberg. And he noticed that in the Greek language, um, the word for justification um, did not have anything to do with infused righteousness, which is what the church was teaching at the time. And this was based off of the church's understanding of the Latin Vulgate, which was the standard uh, Bible translation at the time. Um, and Needham talks about this. He says, quote, Melanchthon's interpretation involved a hugely significant development within the Western theological tradition. The understanding of justification in the Western medieval church relied on the standard Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, which rendered Paul's key Greek term didicheo by the Latin ujustifar. I think I butchered that, but whatever. 
And from this sprang the difficulty. Western theologians understood or misunderstood, as Melanchthon believed, the Latin term ustificar as meaning to make righteous in the sense of moral transformation, the process by which a sinner is changed spiritually in his soul into a just, holy, godly person. They included a forensic dimension, uh, the forgiveness of sins as part of this process, but focused far more attention on the inward moral renewal of the believer. So you have this teaching of the infusion of righteousness. What does that mean? That means that someone would become righteous, actually being changed into a righteous person with the ability to do righteous works, and that better, made their standing better before God, as opposed to a forensic righteousness where they are counted as righteous, but they're not actually being made righteous by Christ's righteousness. Um, that's not being infused into their being with the ability to actually be holy in that sense instead of being counted as righteous where Christ's works are being imputed to them on to their account. There's a big difference there. Melanchthon saw the imputation aspect in the original Greek language and the Catholic church based on the Latin Vulgate saw more of a infusion of righteousness. So this is, this is important. Um, and this, this teaching influenced Luther greatly. He saw this as very important and this is really what led him to understanding what justification meant and what Paul was actually trying to say. Again, you had this Renaissance mindset. We got to go back to the sources. Let's go back to the Greek language. Let's go back to the Greek texts. Let's not just rely on what the church is telling us now. Let's recover this, the early church fathers, the early Christian culture, so that we can understand what these guys are actually writing, not just what someone thought they wrote. So that was, that was critical in their understanding of justification, um, this humanistic uh, Renaissance thinking. Um, so that's where we see really the formulation of justification by faith alone. And it played a huge role in Luther's thinking. Um, now we know Melanchthon would eventually go on, um, and Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he started what is known as the Lutheran Church today. Am I correct? He, he um, was influential in it. He was, he was definitely so. influential. He outlived Luther. So from my understanding, a lot of um, uh, Lutheran practices actually do have a Melanchthonian, um, I don't I guess. The Osberg Confession, I know he wrote that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Lutheranism is heavenly influenced also by Melanchthon. Um, I'm not exactly sure just how much, but it is definitely also heavily influenced by him. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Melanchthon and Luther did not see eye to eye on everything. Predestination, um, eventually Melanchthon would strongly come out writing explicitly in disagreement of that. Uh, he, he believed that man's free will had some aspect in salvation um, as opposed to Luther who did not. Um, so there was, there was some nuances there, but Melanchthon was a champion of the Reformation. He, through his knowledge of the Greek language, helped Luther to understand what Paul was actually trying to say um, and not just simply relying on what the Catholic Church had been providing at the time. So you see these, you know, these men were men of their time. Luther was a scholar, Melanchthon was a scholar, Erasmus was a scholar. All these men were scholars and men of their time trying to understand what was, you know, what had the church changed or what had the church, what teachings had the church brought into academia and how is that influenced biblical influencing biblical teaching now it's it's very important to know that uh, they were just men of their time they were men of their time 
Um, and it's easy, I think, to kind of rip them out of that context and just say, oh, you know, Luther just had an epitome, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, he just came across justification without any um, influence on what was going on around him. Um, humanism being probably the, the primary aspect there. We all know ultimately God was working through these things, but from a, um, a second cause aspect, if you will, um, there are all these different players moving Luther in the direction that he went. Um, and Luther, you know, he, he had already made a storm with his 95 thesis and he had written other theses, the, uh, theses, if I said that correctly, uh, even before his 95 thesis, he had published some. And then after the 95 thesis, he had published some, um, both of those before and after having to do with Augustinian theology and, um, uh, philosophy. But, uh, Luther had raised a stink beforehand and he caused a lot of trouble even before justification by faith came along. Um, but yeah, so it raised a storm and then the Catholic church had a pretty strong response to, uh, Luther's teachings. Um, there are those who in the Catholic church who did not necessarily, um, like Erasmus who seemed to kind of sit on the fence, if you will. Um, he didn't say one way or another whether he agreed with Luther on his doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, he even, well, with regards to free will, he certainly disagreed with Luther. You know, Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, is his response to Erasmus's writing on that. Um, but the the strong response to the to his teaching of justification by faith alone did not come really until Trent. Um, and Sean, if you want to take us into that some. Yeah, sure. So Trent was basically the official response because like right. Dan was alluding to, the response prior to that wasn't completely even. Obviously, the Pope right. was saying what he was saying, but uh, there were various Catholic responses um, to the Reformation. So Trent basically was, it was, it was a council called, and it... Uh, it declared what the uh, response of the Roman Catholic Church was. So this this is official Catholic teaching at this point. Um, I will note just before we dive into uh, what the council actually said that another aspect of the Reformation obviously was sola scriptura. Mm -hmm. And you had the uh, Protestant idea that no, the scriptures are the sole infallible authority they are the final authority. That's what we're going to go to, the final authority. Obviously, many would say the church does have an authority, and we would agree, but the final authority is what God has spoken, and he's spoken in the scriptures. Uh, the Roman Catholic view was uh, tripartite, basically the scriptures, sacred tradition, mm -hmm. and the mysterium of the church are the three pillars of authority that you can go to. And they wouldn't ever say that one is higher than the other, although I think practically that that's not quite the case. But let's uh, dive into a little bit of uh, Trent's response. And so, real quick, Sean, just going yes. back to that, I think Luther even might have touched on or started, you started to see hints of sola scriptura even in Luther's teaching in the 95 thesis. I could be wrong, but I think there is this, you can see this mindset going towards, well, what the church says isn't necessarily right, or it's not necessarily correct. You know, we Christians should be taught X, Y, and Z. Um, 
I think I think there might be some allusion there to that even early on in Luther's uh, Reformation, but this is the side note. All right, so to quote from the Council of Trent, this is uh, session four, decree two, and this is about scripture. Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, it decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall, in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the said sacred scripture contrary to the sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge the truth of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold, or even contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even though such interpretations were never intended to be at any time published. Contraveners shall be made known by their ordinaries and be punished with the penalties by law established. So no one is allowed to interpret in a way that's contrary to Holy Mother Church, that being the Roman Catholic Church. And there's a punishment if you, if you do this sort of thing. Um, we would obviously disagree. And this, this does get to what is the final authority then. Mm -hmm. Because if Rome is able, the only one able to interpret, and if you come to it, it's like, I don't think the Bible says that. It's like, well, you have to go with Rome. Rome gets to speak instead of what the scriptures say. Now, obviously, Roman Catholics is going to say, well, uh, Rome never speaks contrarily to what the scripture actually says, but there's no way to correct at that point. It's actually uh, a vicious circle, circular reasoning. Well, how do you know that's what the Bible says? Well, because Rome says so. How do you know Romans the true church? Because Rome says so. Um, and I just wanted to read one um, uh, Bible passage that uh, would get at why we sort of uh, believe this not to be true. This is coming from Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 5. It's a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did I pro Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, wash it, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. So the point of this passage is not to say all tradition is bad, um, which I've, I've brought this passage up to Roman Catholics before and, and the response has been, well, it doesn't say all tradition is bad. And of course not, that's not what it's saying. But what it does say is scripture gets to determine what is or isn't valid tradition mm -hmm. because as uh as it was said the the pharisees here were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men and how was it that uh why is jesus um rebuking them because they should have known better that this wasn't a doctrine it was a commandment of men uh how do they how should have they known it because it uh, um contradicted the word of god it contradicted what's said in exodus chapter 20 
that uh, you shall honor your mother and father. So the scripture, if somebody, if Roman Catholics come to me and say, this is doctrine, this is of God, according to Jesus' example, I have the right to go to the scriptures and be like, no, this does not come from God. It contradicts what the scriptures say. Um, so moving on uh, a little bit, I do want to note just in passing before we move on to justification that uh, in Trent, they actually did pull back the idea that uh, the sale of indulgences was uh, a practice to be had. They basically condemned it. Um, not indulgences, indulgences as a concept. Indulgences are still done by the Catholic Church today, but they recognized that there was an abuse going on and that the sale of indulgences wasn't something that should be done. So it's not that uh, Trent was not willing to concede anything, but um, it, we don't think that it is conceded on the, the most important issues. So jumping to justification, I'm going to uh, read three canons, I think, here. So these are all from session six of the uh, Council of Trent. The first canon is canon nine. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Um, canon 24, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. And uh, Canon 32, if anyone saith that the good works of the one that is justified are in such manner the gifts of God, as they are not also the good merits of him that is justified, or that the said justified by the good works which he performs through the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit increase of grace, eternal life, and the attainment of that eternal life, if so be, however, that he depart in grace, and also an increasing of the glory, let him be anathema. Um, so, so before I, I delve into this, I do want to note that um, in Roman Catholic theology, anathema is sort of equivalent to excommunication. To quote from the Catholic Encyclopedia, anathema remains a major excommunication, which is to be promulgated with great solemnity. And when they mean, when they say major excommunication, that's not just a withdrawal from the sacraments. That's a weak, uh, you should not be in fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church whatsoever. Uh, so you would, you would not be allowed to attend a mass or whatever. But to get back to justification, obviously these are extremely uh, problematic because we believe the Bible clearly teaches that justification is the element, is an element of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And as uh, yep. Paul says in <laughs> Galatians chapter one, starting at verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, obviously Paul's speaking to the Galatians here, but we would, we would understand this principle that if somebody comes to you with a gospel that is not the apostolic one, they're accursed. Um, it's actually funny that the underlying word uh, under accursed is 
anathema, which is where anathema would come from. But uh, I think it's being used here in a, a little bit more, um, a more strict sense than the Roman Catholic version, uh, because this has the idea of accursed or damned. Uh, whereas I don't think that the Roman Catholic version quite has that sense. Necessarily. I think they have more of an excommunication mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, is still bad, but it, it's not necessarily as strong as saying you're damned to hell because yeah. of your, your actions. Yeah. So yeah. To, so to justification is an element of the gospel and we can't be wrong about this. This mm -hmm. is something that many today would want to sort of gloss over. It's like, Oh, our views of justification are close enough, but we cannot go that far. We cannot say that. Um, for instance, as I was reading, um, where's a good, uh, like saying that, um, uh, that the said justified by the good works, which he performs through the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit increase of grace, eternal life, and the attainment of that eternal life. Uh, so they're saying, yes, you can merit eternal life. They're acknowledging it's by the grace of God, but you still need to merit it. And that's, that's entirely wrong. Entirely mm -hmm. wrong. Um, the Bible holds that those two things are incompatible. You cannot merit and have it by, be by grace. Roman Catholics, the Council of Trent here is trying to say, oh yeah, it's by both. But these are, these are two opposite things. And I it think assumes that, too that you, you're, that the person being saved somehow has an inherent ability to do righteous things. Yeah. And then what is the purpose of the infusion of righteousness if man can save himself by his own good works? Yeah, so that's a question to ask, but. So um, Romans chapter 11, starting at verse five, even so then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it is by grace, then it is no longer of works. Yep. Otherwise grace is no longer grace. Yep. But if it is of works it is no longer grace. Otherwise work is no longer work. So, this is setting up the idea that grace is completely contrary to works. If you're, if you're working for your salvation, it's not by grace. Mm -hmm. The obvious question is, well, we're saying it's merited, not necessarily that we're working for it. And I would say that the way Paul uses works in Romans is basically equivalent to um, merit. Yeah, because he talks about a labor or laborer receiving his wages. Exactly. Which has to do with you earning something based on what you did, which is merit. Yeah. So going to Romans chapter four, starting at verse one, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Yep. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Yep. So there's a contrast here. If you're working, what you're going to get, that's not grace. That's debt. It's something that's owed to you, right? It's a recompense. Yep. So that is, it's, it's merited. But this if is God saying, were just, he would have to give it to you because yes. you're fulfilling his law. Yeah. Or he's not being just. He owes you something because of that. Yeah, exactly. But this is purely of grace. And if it's grace, it can't be by works. You can't be owed it, essentially. So, and then there, I think there was one other 
thing I wanted to bring out. Oh, the, this, um, the fact that they're talking about that um, you can increase your justification uh, going back to <laughs> Canon yeah. 24, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let them be anathema. So that is where you see the conflation of sanctification and justification, because obviously we as Protestants would view justification as a past tense thing. You, you, you believe on Christ, you are justified, right? You can't increase your justification. Honestly, that gets to an atonement issue because what you're saying is right. Christ's righteousness, which is applied to you, you can go above it in order to increase your justification. You can go above it. Or you're saying that Christ's righteousness is not applied to you. One or the other. And if you're saying that God, that you can become more justified, that implies that there is an element of just an element of yourself that is not justified. And then how do you know where that line is reached, where you are completely exactly. justified? Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah. I mean, if it's a workspace salvation, it's ultimately based on what you mm -hmm. do. So how do you know if you're good enough? Mm -hmm. And I want to, because Roman Catholics oftentimes say we're not a works-based salvation because <laughs> it's not necessarily keeping the Old Testament law. But if you've created a new system of works to do, it is. And right. I'll, I'll quote, this will be the last quote from Trent. Session 7, Canon 4, if anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or without desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, though all the sacraments are not needed necessary for every individual, let them be anathema. So sacraments, or at least desire thereof, because obviously Roman Catholics understand that sometimes people die before they're baptized, but they would say, oh, he had a desire for it, therefore um, he's still able to get the grace of justification. <laughs> but it's not by faith alone you need to get the grace of justification through these sacraments. And I would uh, like to go to Galatians again, because I think it's, um, it's an excellent place to uh, refute this. Um, this only I want to learn from you. Oh, sorry, this is Galatians chapter three, starting at verse two. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? So this right here says, and now obviously he's talking about the Old Testament law and specifically ha probably has circumcision in mind because that's what he's dealing with, people that are saying that you need to be circumcised to be saved. But... He's, he's telling you, how did you receive the Spirit? Did you hear it by your law-keeping or by hearing with faith? The answer obviously being no, we, we receive the Spirit by faith. Rome is trying to say, oh no, you receive the Spirit, you receive the grace of justification through a new law, essentially. You've got to be baptized and whatever. And that's completely contrary to Paul's point. No, we hear the Spirit, we become saved through faith alone nothing to do with the law. Otherwise, what's Paul's point here? Should they have been circumcised? Could they have received justification through that? No. 
Um, and I have one, one more quote and then we'll move on to modern Rome, I think. Uh, this is also from Galatians, the same chapter, but verse 10. For as many, are, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So once again, we're seeing this contrast here. You can either have the law or you can have faith. You can't have both. So many times in my conversations with Roman Catholics, it seems like they're trying to say, oh yeah, but you can have both. Like there's nothing inherently contradictory about these things. Yeah, I have, I have faith. I'm justified by faith, but also these things that I have to do. And that's wrong. These are two inherently separate principles. You can either be justified by keeping the law or you can be justified by faith. Yep, that's exactly right. No and, one's going to be justified by the law. Yep. And I'll just say, just real quick before we move on, uh, going back to session six, canon nine, um, they say that there is nothing, um, you know, if you say there's nothing else that's required to cooperate in, uh, in order to obtain the grace of salvation, and then they mention human will. So it almost seems like they misunderstood what the reformers were trying to say, at least what Luther was trying to say. We don't believe that our will has no part in our salvation. We just don't believe it's because of our will it, or that our will somehow was able to freely move towards, towards faith, in faith to God by its own volition um, or inherently in ourselves. So it, it, it almost seems like they created a straw man with that by saying something that we, and I don't think Luther ever taught. Luther did not deny that the will was not necessary or that the will was not important. He taught that the will was bound to sin and it needed to be freed before it could truly move towards um, salvific faith in God. I was just noting that in passing. So I will, I will note that um, in my reading through Trent, specifically session six, they're not always, not every canon is about Protestantism. For example, uh, I think the first canon is actually a denial of Pelagianism. It, it says, oh, okay. if, if anyone says that grace is not needed, um, let them be anathema, which obviously we would agree with. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, pure Pelagianism like that, we would we would agree with this. So there might have been some group that was saying no movement of the will at all is part of salvation. I'm not I'm not sure exactly who that was directed at. Let's put it that way. Um, but so now, now the real question becomes, so has Rome changed? Because we all have heard on uh, perhaps don't know exactly what happened with Vatican II, but it does seem that Vatican II changed things. Did it change things fundamentally? I would argue no, that the Roman Catholic Church still um, teaches basically the same thing. What did change in Vatican II was how Roman Catholics were supposed to treat or view Protestants. Uh, because before it was essentially, if you're not in the Roman Catholic Church, the, this, if you're not in the bounds of the Roman Catholic Church, basically you're not saved. Uh, whereas now we're being treated as separated brethren, which I don't think, and I'm pretty sure Vatican II used that phrase, separated brethren. But prior to that, you would not have seen that language. So how, um, Roman Catholicism views Protestantism has changed, but in terms of its view of scripture and justification, 
that has not changed. So I'm going to read a couple, um, couple uh, paragraphs here from the Roman Catholic Catechism. This is the current one. I think it was done in 1994. Uh, paragraph 80, sacred tradition and uh, the sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other for both of them flowing out from the same divine wellspring came together in some fashion to form the one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the, in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own, always to the close of the age, uh, two distinct modes of transmission. Uh, paragraph 81, sacred scripture is the speech of God as is, it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit, we would agree. Mm -hmm. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad in the preaching. Sounds like a conflation there. Yeah. So now they're saying holy tradition also transmits the entire in its entirety the word of God, which I would, I would have to imagine is, well... There, there are Roman Catholic capital T traditions, holy traditions that are not in the word of God, period. So for them to say it transmits its entirety of the word of God, uh, assuming, well, I guess that what they'd have to say, it transmits it in the entirety of the word of God. The scriptures don't transmit it in its entirety, but regardless. <laughs> um, uh, paragraph 82, as a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone, but Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, paragraph 85, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, which is, which, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the Church alone. Its authority is in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ, this means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor Peter, the bishop of Rome. So there, there's where you get to exactly what Trent was saying, that we have the right and only, the, only we have the right to interpret the scriptures appropriately. And throughout the catechism, you'll see footnotes with references to Trent. So obviously they're not trying to throw Trent under the, uh, the bus here. They're, they're quoting from it like it's authoritative. Mm. Um, moving on to justification, and then after that, we'll, we'll do a, a subtopic of merit. So paragraph 1989, the first- Oh, real quick, Sean, I yes. think you, um, 86. Uh, I decided to skip over that one. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I, it is interesting, though, that they say, this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but then, oh, you know, oh, by the way, tradition is on par with the word of God. Yeah, yeah. But anyways. Yes. Uh Paragraph 1989, the first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, affecting justification in accordance with Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of the gospel, repent for the kingdom, God is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from, from on high. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also sanctification and the renewal of the interior man. And that's the big one right there. They're blatantly saying it justification is not only the remission of sins but also the sanctification and renewal of the internal man uh, interior man and that's the definition of justification we can't read in paul 
and that's what's going to cause us massive amount of trouble when we go there that's that's them saying defining justification yeah justification in a way that's not compatible with the scriptures so paragraph 1992 justification has been merited for us by the passion of christ who offered himself on the cross as a living victim holy and pleasing to god and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men so far basically Mm -hmm. all good Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is to the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. So, baptism is what's conferring justification. And Roman Catholics are obviously paedo-baptists. They will baptize adult converts, but for the most part, they're baptizing children of believers. Um, and that's what justifies you. Even if those children, there's no way to know if they have faith or not. Wow. So it, it, apparently you receive the spirit by baptism and not by faith, as Paul is saying. Uh, paragraph 1263, by baptism, all sins are forgiven, original and all per- personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. And if those who have been reborn... Uh, Sorry, in those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God, neither Adam's sin, nor personal sin, nor consequences of sins, the greatest of which is separation from God. So, but what about it, your increase, but the, necess, the necessity to increase in justification or the ability thereof? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Also, I mean, this, this paragraph, I assume, has to mean that assuming you have assuming you don't commit moral sins and take yourself out of the grace of justification, obviously. And this is still confessing Trent, right? This is not contradicting it. No, no, nothing I've seen. Well, well, I mean, it kind of is, but it, it, yeah, it kind of is contradicting it, it, but not intentionally. Oh, why do you think that? Oh, just like I said, with uh, baptism, they're saying that they cannot do anything to impede their entry in the kingdom of God. But then in Trent confessed that you can still increase your justification, thereby implying that there is something about you that is not justified, which. No, so you... the okay. way <laughs> the way I would understand this is because they have a, a concept of, of mortal sin, right? So, yes. yeah, so you can by your own choice, lose your justification and then need to go through the sacrament of penance to get it back, essentially. Um, so it, this seems like an absolute statement, but it's in a context that would deny its absoluteness, essentially. Uh, by baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, uh, as well as the punishment of sin. But, you know, I can commit a mortal sin and then all of a sudden I am liable for the punishment of those sins. And then you would have so, to go back and go through the the... Uh, the process of penance, yep. which would which would increase your justification, I guess, in their context. Okay. Yeah, got it. Um, plus, they have the idea of, of purgatory, right? Which, um, you can die in a spot where you're justified enough to go to heaven, but you still need to purify yourself, and that that's increasing in justification. If you define justification as also including sanctification, you're not fully justified until you've been completely purged in purgatory, then you can go to heaven. So uh, it, it gets into that, how they divide up sin where there's a temporal punishment and a non-temporal mm-hmm. punishment, and you're still liable for the temporal punishment, which 
makes no sense. Either Jesus took all the punishment or he didn't. So infusion really doesn't make you completely righteous. It just makes you righteous enough to get in, but you still have little yeah. more purging to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, so now to talk about the subtopic of merit. Um, so paragraph uh, 2006, the term merit refers in general to the recompense owned owed by a community or a society for the action of one of its members experienced either as beneficial or harmful, deserving reward or punishment. Merit is relative to the virtue of justice in conformity with the principle of equity, equality, which governs it. So this is essentially defining it similarly to how Paul defined a work, right? If you work, you're going to be given what you're, what you're owed. It's, it's mm -hmm. counted as debt. This is saying it's a recompense owed. Um, so let's see how they use it. Paragraph 2007. With regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality, for we have received everything from him, our creator. Excellent. Spot on. We would agree. Um, everything ultimately comes from God, so in no true sense could we, we merit anything. Yep. Paragraph 2010. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Temporal goods like health and friendship can be merited in accordance with God's wisdom. These graces and goods are the object of Christian prayer. Prayer attends to the grace we need for the meritorious actions. So what they're saying is, yes, by God's, nobody will merit anything by God's grace. But once you have grace on the back end, you can merit your salvation. And as we had been reading before, these two ideas are in total contrast. Either it's by grace or it's by merit, but it can't be both. That's what Paul said. I'll, I'll read it again. Um, uh, Romans 11, verse 5. Even so, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's, yep. that's it. You can't, you can't say, oh, yeah, it's by grace, but after that, I need to merit it. This almost sounds like a mild form of provisionism, like God somehow gets us to a certain point and then we do the rest. Or he, he gives us mm. the grace needed to do X, Y, and Z, um, and then we somehow are able to fill in the blank that he did not. Uh, well, complete. so I'll, I'll be honest. That's um, why I'm saying it's very loose, but it well, almost sounds like it in a sense. And, and at some point, I, I want to actually read the, uh, the provisionist, like what they actually say. Um, because I've only heard YouTube uh, videos, and sometimes that's not very helpful for getting a systematic theology out of someone. Uh, but my understanding of provisionism is they think of grace as the preaching of the gospel. That's the grace. God didn't need to ha uh, basically create the gospel. Um, so it's gracious that he did, and now it's preached, and that's grace. I would say the Roman, if that's true, if that's what the provisionists hold to, that's less biblical than what Rung teaches about <laughs> um, uh, because um, at least their concept of grace seems to be more in line with what I view the Bible teaching. Yeah, um, like it says right here, the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace. No one yeah. can merit the initial grace of forgiveness at the beginning of conversion. Yeah. yeah. 
but I guess in the principle of, you know, God kind of sets us up, he gives it, he, he gives us some kind of salvific grace and then just says, here you go. That I, I guess is similar, but yeah, I, I, in terms of how that practically works out, it, it's probably different. But so this, this is saying 100%, you're meriting your salvation. You're Absolutely. earning it. You're earning Absolutely. it. There's, there's no denial of this. And uh, that's, that's where we have the problem. Yep. For someone to say, no, Roman Catholicism isn't a works-based salvation. I mean, when we say works-based salvation, that's what we mean, that you're right. trying to merit your salvation. Exactly. Um, so We do not like it when we say that. No, no. Um, so to answer the question, is Rome still the same? Yes. Uh, they've changed how they view Protestants and how they relate to us, but ultimately they're still teaching the same thing. Yep. And that makes it very difficult because, A, whenever you meet a Roman Catholic, they may not necessarily even understand or believe what Rome teaches about justification. I, I, like I said before, I've run into Roman Catholics with many different views of this. So just because you're running into a Roman Catholic um, doesn't mean you should have necessary. You should expect, you should ask them what they believe, to be honest. Because, right. Um, it's not monolithic. Yeah. Uh, despite what Rome would want to want to say about itself. Um, it's not very monolithic, but in terms of what it officially teaches, uh, we have to say with the boldest amount, uh, the, as bold as we can, this is a false gospel. If you yep. believe what Rome teaches, you will go to hell. Yes. I, don't say, I don't say that to be mean or cruel to Roman Catholics. I have, I have Roman Catholic friends. Um, but if you believe this on the basis of what God has spoken in his word, you will go to hell. Yep. Um, so at this point, we would like to uh, tell you what the true gospel is because um, we can harp on how Rome's wrong all day long, but if we don't mm -hmm. proclaim the true gospel, then what, what good have we truly done to you, done for you? Um, so the gospel is this. Um, I'm sure if you are a Roman Catholic, you at least know the basics that uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate um, by the Virgin Mary and went to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. Um, th those are all elements that we would share. The issue then becomes, okay, what do I do with that? And what did that, what, what did Christ's sacrifice do? And what do I do with that? And the answer is Christ's life and sacrifice both was an atonement for sin and it's, it's a positive amount of righteousness. So mm -hmm. if by faith and faith alone, we are made to be in Christ, then we have an atonement for our sins and uh, we have Christ's righteousness applied to our account. That's how uh, the Bible can talk uh, about us being accounted as righteousness. We have mm -hmm. the righteousness of Christ applied on our Sean, you still there? Looks like we lost Mr. Chatham. Well, to, to close off what Sean is saying here, um, yes, we, we want you to understand that there is a true gospel. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. I was just finishing your thought. Oh, okay. Um, just that, yes, we want you to understand that there is a true gospel that Rome if you do believe in what Rome has taught, you will go to hell, as Sean has said. But going back to Sean's point, Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law of God on behalf of his people, going to a cross, 
dying for the sins, all of the sins of all of his people for all time, past, present, and future. And by doing so, impute, uh, and by doing so through faith, those who believe in the work that Christ did, his death, burial, and resurrection, they will receive that righteousness that Christ lived. Not, and it's not an infused righteousness like Rome teaches. It's not that we are made actually righteous. It's that God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to our account. So he looks at us and he says, not guilty. It, it, it's as if we never did anything sinful. It's as if we never broke his law because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to our account. That's the true gospel. If you believe in that and, uh, and believe in it by faith and faith alone, you will receive Christ's righteousness. You will be made justified in the sight of the Father so that he looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness, and he says, not guilty, and he can accept you. Being just, God can accept you because his law has been fulfilled. The punishment for breaking his law has been satisfied in Christ, and the positive, uh, the act of obedience to God's law has been satisfied as well. Both of those things are applied to your account as if you did them, and God can justly bring you in to his kingdom. That's the true gospel. That's what we want to be taken away from today. Yeah. Um, so please, um, if, if you're a Roman Catholic listening to our show today, we, we beg of you, turn to Christ by faith alone. Trust in his work, what he did. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in some works that you have done because you'll never be able to attain eternal life through your own works. Paul says in Romans chapter three that there is none is who is righteous, no, not one. All of our works are nothing in God's eyes. They are um, in some sense sinful in his eyes. So we cannot truly keep the law of God. We, nothing you can do will obtain salvation or even come close to satisfying what God requires us to do to be with him. God requires perfection, and that's why we need the righteousness of Christ. So turn to Christ, believe in him by faith, and you will be saved. And that's what uh, we want you to take away from our episode today. And if you understand that true gospel, you will understand why the Roman Catholic gospel is, is offensive to God, right? Yes. Because Jesus Christ has the perfect righteousness. He has all you need. So for anyone to say, yeah, but I need to have an additional righteousness that, by God's grace, but I need to, I need to get it on my own, um, that's offensive. It's essentially saying Christ is insufficient. His yep. sacrifice is insufficient. There are certain things that still need to happen, and that's that's wrong. Uh, so we pray uh, that you would you would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if anyone believes on Him, he will be saved. Amen. Amen. Well, that is all we are going to be discussing today. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully, it was helpful. A lot of history, a lot of uh, um, theological discussion, but very important. This, these are gospel issues. These are not things to be trifled with. Um, so we, we hope it was beneficial, um, and Lord willing, we will see you guys next week. Have a good one.